You're listening to the Sill Podcast, perspectives on art and technology with Peter Noche and Harry Posner. Episode 2, The Value Crisis, From Dollars to Democracy, Why Numbers Are Ruining Our World. In a previous podcast on technology that Peter and I did, the whole idea of human values came up in our talk, in our dialogue. And one of us mentioned your name as... It was you, Harry. It was me? I mentioned your name as the author of The Value Crisis, From Dollars to Democracy, Why Numbers Are Ruining Our World. So which Andrew Welch wrote this book? Because there's various Andrew Welches. There's the Andrew Welch who retired at the tender age of 39. There's the Andrew Welch who is a town crier. There's the Andrew Welch who is a software developer that has done very well. And so the question is, you know, which hat was Andrew Welch wearing when he wrote The Value Crisis? Uh, He was wearing his home hat. I am just as concerned about the state of the planet and the state of society as a lot of other people around me. And I could sense the frustration. And so it was a connection between that frustration and the curiosity I had when strange things happened in my life that didn't seem to add up to the value system that I had going at the time. And so I tried to resolve these with a little essay and it turned into a book. But that frustration, it sounds to me in talking to you about your life, that frustration must have begun. It's the seeds of it must have begun back before you even retired at that age, right? Because wouldn't you have yeah. had to tussle with values? and? Sure. That was part of the thing that was flowing below the radar. It was something that I was not consciously thinking about. Very few people, I think, consciously think about their values, but they have hints. And I would have always known, especially compared to my siblings and so on, and people and more, even more my classmates around me, I would have known at a very early age that I wasn't into buying things. And I could have told you that, but I, I couldn't have told you that that would have shaped the way I think about money and numbers and work as much as it had. It, that only sort of comes from hindsight. And I don't think a lot of people put that thought into it. So then what was your road to Damascus aha moment that really set this in motion? The aha moment was at a time when I made a realization that I was making decisions in my life in day-to-day affairs that were giving me satisfaction and making me feel Uh, confident about the direction I was going, but they were, in many respects, irrational decisions with respect to economics and numbers. And what caught me about that was that I had always thought that I was of the belief that numbers were the answer, that if we could just put the human emotion stuff aside, that numbers would give us a rational answer to solving the world's problems. And clearly, it wasn't. It wasn't working for me. And I thought, what the heck's going on here? So I want you to give us the, you know, the one minute elevator pitch on what this book is about. What is the value crisis actually about? All right. It's actually about the different ways in which we measure value, how we measure and determine success. And the key point is that if you use a value system that measures success with a number, 
And it could be anything. It could be, well, the most obvious example is wealth. If we measure success by wealth, then uh, we lock ourselves into a number-based system that, if you think about it, more is always worth more. So no matter what your net income is, no matter what your wealth is in the bank balance, you can always add a zero to that. So there is no concept of sufficiency. There's no concept of enough. The interesting thing is that when you really think about that, this is the only thing in nature that has that aspect. The only thing that more is always worth more. Everything else in nature has a feedback cycle, has a, whoa, I've eaten too much. I've got to stop eating. I've got to back away from the table and so on. But one of the key things in that book that I found of real interest, which kind of answered my questions in some way, was that triad situation of the consumer, the citizen, and the investor. And I thought to myself after I read the book, if I could align those three, I think I've solved my problem. Yeah, that would take you a, a long way. Absolutely. Of course, the awareness is the first step that, that these three things are going on. These three things being three sets of values that we all have, we all share, and they are in conflict, they are in opposition. So an awareness that we all have them and they're all okay allows us to be comfortable with ourselves who we are and not think of ourselves as hypocritical if we happen to be environmentalists and yet we want to fly to visit our grandkids somewhere, you know, that these are at odds with one another. And so you'd say, oh, geez, I, I feel bad flying across the country to see my grandkids. Well, well, no, these are value conflicts that we have to resolve all the time. So can you define each of those three? Sure. The easiest example is to think of what you could do with a $50 bill. The first thing you could do is spend it. And that's uh, sort of represents our consumer value set where we are looking after our immediate needs. We have to consume as, as living organisms. We have to consume. So we spend the $50 to get us food or shelter, what have you. The second value, which is in direct conflict to that, is the investor value, which is the one that wants to save the $50, keep it for a rainy day, the one that realizes that food might not always be available in the quantity that it is, and we have to set some aside. So in the modern society, the consumer wants low prices. The investor actually wants high prices. They want their money to grow. They want businesses to thrive and, and get a good return on investment. So they are in conflict. The third one then, which I call the citizen value, is one that is looking out for the needs of others. And so that's the one that gives the $50 away. And all of these things give us joy. We have joy spending money. We have joy saving money. And we have joy giving money away. Ask anybody who gives to charity. They'll tell you that. And so the citizen value is also the one that doesn't measure things in terms of numbers. So they're not in concern so much about the price of food items. They're considering the quality of the food items and what we do to the planet to get that food. And they're the ones that say water shouldn't have a price because it's uh, human right or whatever. Justice, um, even having kids is really a sort of a citizen value because you don't gain money by having kids. You don't save money by having kids you certainly spend it, but you don't. that doesn't appeal to the consumer. I don't think that's why they have kids, so that they can go out shopping. The thing that struck me about the book itself was you chose to retire at 39 years of age. 
And that's what gave the book weight for me. You didn't really retire with a tremendous amount of wealth. You were doing okay, but by most people's standards, it certainly wasn't sufficient for you to completely go to the retirement mode at 39. No, absolutely not. Retiring at 39 was simply redefining what retirement meant. And there are lots of people who I know have retired, but they continue to work. They continue to do things. And you sort of say, well, hey, why aren't you on the golf course? Why? What does this retirement mean? I would pose that question. And the, the answer I got back was usually, well, I don't have to work, but I want to work. I want to do these things. I want to take on these projects. But I also am going to set myself up in such a way that I'm not locked into work and careers. I'm going to take on jobs in such a way that they realize that I may not be available next year. I may be on a cruise or something like that. And I thought, well, why would I wait until I'm 65 to do that? I'm, I'm going to need to keep working. I can't afford to stop working. But I want to define work on my own terms. So that was the major part of the retirement was that I, I said to, I was self-employed at the time, and I said to clients, hey, when I'm in your office, you have me 100%. When I'm gone, I may be gone a long time. So let's just keep that understanding. It was just a, an understanding. But I think there was, there was another aspect of that definition of retirement in that I decided instead of my income determining my standard of living, I was going to let my standard of living determine my income. And so I geared down a bit in terms of the standard of living that I was aspiring to. And I realized that I didn't need as much money as I had coming in. So I didn't have to work as much. I could actually earn less and maintain the standard of living that I had chosen to. And that gets us out of this trap of the more we earn, the higher our standard of living, and then we become really comfortable with that. And we want more because we're now living amongst neighbors that have more and we want to compete with them and stay on a level with them. And that gets you out of that. And when we start to think about other ways of measuring value, things that matter to us, justice, uh, beauty, the environment, biodiversity, all of these things, they can't be measured by number. You can measure things about them by number, but you can't measure your success by number. And so I suddenly realized that when we adopt numbers as our sole decision-making criteria for our personal lives, for our, the way our governments make decisions and so on, we're leaving out all of that stuff that can't be measured by number. So all of the aspects of relationships and beauty and friendship and, and justice and so on, all out the window because they don't appear on the balance sheet. You know what's interesting, though? The value crisis is the title. And the crisis, in a sense, is being measured by number through the degradation of the environment, how many lakes are drying up, the levels of pollution. It's all number measured, which I think is really interesting that we're using the number of based value systems that we're saying that you're saying in this book has overwhelmed our human values to actually determine how much of a crisis we're in. Ah, well, you see, we are using numbers to measure these things, but we're not using number based values. When we use a number based value to measure these things, we start to get twisted up because that's when the economists come along and they say, hey, I think we have to put a dollar value on our trees and on our biodiversity. And that's useful. That's, that's, a, that's a good first step to start thinking about the value that these things bring. But as soon as you start putting a dollar value on them, then you start 
being able to say, well, you know what? I paid off some money somewhere else, so it balanced out. So I'm okay to cut down this rainforest because I gave money to something else in a developing country or something. So it becomes problematic to use number-based values in such situations. But yeah, obviously, if you're using science, you're using numbers, and that's fine. I'm a mathematician. That's the way I grew up. I love numbers. What you just mentioned about the number-based value system, I think as a young man working in high school, I noticed something that kind of bothered me almost from day one because I was working with all kinds of people as a young teenager and seeing truck drivers and grocery clerks and watching someone come in with a suit and a bulletin board or, or a, sorry, a, not a bulletin board, a, a clipboard. clipboard. And he's walking up and down the aisle and he's making four, five, six times as much as the fellow that stocked the entire aisle. And certain things started to bother me from the perspective of how are we valuing people? Is this man who works all day making this aisle the way it is while this fellow comes in in a suit and checks off that everything is okay? Why are we paying him five, six times more than the fellow who's done all the work? And it's not that I don't appreciate the work that goes into becoming, i.e. a professional or another level of sophistication. There's an investment of time and energy, which I get. But what I found troublesome was is that people actually look at these two people differently, not just from a perspective of you went the extra mile by getting the education, deep down thinking like he's actually worth more because he's brighter or because sure. he's got a cleaner job, which I find troubling. Sure. And a basketball star could make uh, $7 million a season and a cardiologist performing heart surgery might make 300000 a year. When we start to assign a number, it becomes very easy to compare these things and say, well, what's their real value to society? The interesting thing to me when you started talking about the, the grocery store was that I recall People have been talking about income inequity since the beginning of time. And I believe it was actually Aristotle who said that the richest person in society should be making, I think, no more than 40 times what the poorest person would be making. Something along those lines. Of course, this was back in the days when they still had slavery, right? So how does that figure? But still, uh, people have been thinking about that ratio for millennia. And of course, now uh, it's nothing like 40 to one. It's uh, probably for the highest paid people, it's more like, you know, a couple of million to one, uh, if not more. It's all about relationship, isn't it? I mean, how we value each other in whether it's family or friends or strangers determines how much weight we give resource thinking over numerical value. Right, right. right. But the, the other thing is that, see, that numbers have a bunch of properties, and one of the properties is not just this more is always worth more. That's the linear property. But there's also the universal property in that numbers are the same numbers for everyone, so that it becomes extremely easy to compare when you assign a number to it. So am I more important than you? Am I stronger than you uh, character-wise? Th- these things can't be answered. Right. But how much money do you make? How much money do I make? How much money does the guy making radios in Taiwan make? These are instant comparisons. We can do them right away. And so it becomes very easy to have that color a relationship. I can work with somebody, a coworker, and I can have a relationship with them. But as soon as I know what they're making and what I'm making, that relationship can change yeah. instantly. Right. You talk in the book about how currency has gone from object to currency 
to a kind of virtual right. data world. Yeah. What does that mean for us? Well, it means that value is, is moving further and further away from what we humans really understand as value from the beginning of time. Every animal understands value in terms of food, in terms of survival. That's important. And so from our earliest days, we measured value and we exchanged value in terms of things we could actually use. Rice was money for a while. Salt was money. Silk. Right, right, exactly. Things that we could actually make immediate use of. And then after a while, people started to realize well, it's not always convenient to measure things that way because if I'm measuring it in animal skins, maybe I don't need animal skins right now. And so I don't really want to accept that as a currency, if you will, for whatever I'm providing. So instead, we started to create things that would represent value, an IOU in a sense. And that's what money was, was money was something to say, I think you've done uh, really great work for me. Here's a little something that means nothing to you, you can't eat it, except that you can give it to somebody else and get something that you can eat. And that was great for a while. The problem was that as soon as you start to move away from the actual thing of human value to something that represents value, it only has value so long as everyone believes it has value. And if you start to create money yourself out of your own metal, suddenly you're creating wealth from value that didn't actually exist. You didn't do the work, you just sort of created these coins or what have you. And we're now at the point where a money trader can make millions of dollars in a day just by doing some computer instructions and flipping it back and forth. Yeah. We've gone literally to an intangible source and there's no basis of putting it up against something. Yeah. So well, it gets worse actually because money used to be an IOU. Money is now a you owe me, which is something very different. What I mean by that is that because money can be created to represent wealth where wealth doesn't exist, we've actually taken that like to the nth degree where 99.9% of all the wealth in the world represents value that doesn't yet exist. Sounds like a conjurer's trick. It is. Right? It is. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a scam that the banks have created. It goes back uh, hundreds of years now. But when you borrow money from a bank, that money doesn't exist until you sign the dotted line saying, I am going to pay you back. That creates the money. We now have money that's created around debt. And you've got to put in the extra work to pay their interest. That's right. As you, as you pay off the loan, the money ceases to exist. It's a weird concept, but the interest, you have to create that value yourself. There are some great bankers quotations out there that basically say, if the general public knew how this system worked, there would be a complete revolution. There would be a total uproar. But by choosing to retire at 39, which was really the beginning in some ways of this book, you must have been at odds with a lot of things that made you make that choice. Oh, yeah. And when I was writing the book, I realized that one of the things that seemed to resonate with people was personal stories. And so in the end, every chapter starts with a personal story that kind of gets resolved at the end of the chapter. But in looking for personal stories to begin each chapter and digging back, I started to realize that, yeah, a lot of these personal stories dated well before I had my epiphany, if you will, about the book and about writing it. So I realized that some of these things uh, have been around a long time. Things like the first stereo component I ever had as a university student was a CD player. And it was one of the first CD players. I mean, we're talking something the size of a 
a bread maker. You know, it was big. It was a full stereo component. And at one point it stopped working and I took it in to get it repaired. And the guy said, throw it away throw it away. It's not worth my time to open it up. And I thought, this is, this is nuts. This is a big thing. There's so many things in here that still work. It's, it's a, it's a lot of metal and components. And the guy said, no, chuck it. A good example of something that when people start knocking whole industries like the bottled water industry or what have you, and, and the argument that usually comes back is no, thousands of people are employed by this. We have to keep people active and engaged well, why don't we repair things anymore? Oh, well, it costs too much money. Yeah, but that would be a job for people, you know, to repair things and so on. The problem is not that people have nothing to do or nothing that they could do. The problem is the way we assign a number to their work and how we decide what's worth it and what isn't. And that whole agenda really is being put forward by the larger organizations that kind of make society run, the banks, government, corporations the Bilderberg Society for Conspiracy Theorists out yeah. there to suggest that these larger organizations are actually keeping the status quo moving in the direction you're right. talking about. So how right. does the individual, the helpless little individual, kind of fight against all of these forces pushing in on them? Right. And there are a lot of books out there that would lay the blame squarely on the doorstep of the corporations and so on. I, I take a, a slightly different perspective in that I believe that corporations, if you will, do nothing that we don't insist that they I do. agree totally. You know, we demand the low prices. We demand the selection. This is These are all things created by us. And in fact, corporations as an entity were created by us. They exist solely on, on the pieces of paper and the laws that we write and we create. The problem is that we are approaching now is that they have gotten a little too big for us to manage. They've gotten a little out of hand. They are entities that are demanding human rights. We want the freedom of speech. We want the right to, to do this and to do that, that, that all you humans have, whereas they don't have human values. They're not operated by human values. They don't have human restrictions like a lifespan. So they can only grow. They can only get bigger. Now, that's not to say that every corporation will succeed because corporations will fail and, and be eaten up and dropped off the charts, but only because other corporations are eating them up. Somewhere, the corporation is growing. And so... They want citizen privileges, but they're not doing anything. They're not living citizen values. Right. They don't need the water. They don't need the air. Uh, all they need... Their, their bottom line is very different. Their needs are very different. And in fact, it's one of the things I explore in the book is what are the needs of a corporation and how do they exist. Harry, in his comments to you, it feels a little personal frustration at the inability to actually make a change as an individual. Isn't that what government is supposed to do in terms of assisting the citizen part of the population? Well, it's something the government could do. It's something that it's a role that is missing. The book doesn't say that the government should be doing more about this, really, but it, it does say that there is a, a missing gap. And this goes back to the three value persona you talked about earlier, that if we take those values of the, the consumer, the investor, and the citizen and scale them up to a societal level, we have our consumer values represented very well by the marketplace. The marketplace is the thing that determines low prices and choice and people being looked after in terms of their immediate needs. That's the marketplace. And that's the only value system it lives to. 
is, is low prices. The investor values are represented mainly by the corporations. That's the growth side, the, the higher prices, the profit, the building for tomorrow growth. That's the investor side. And so that's really well represented too. The problem is that our citizen values are not represented at the societal level. So nobody is really championing justice and, and social equity and the environment and, and all of these things that run counter to consumer and investor claims. Nobody is, is being the counterbalancing force. And it used to be the church. The church in our history used to be the one to say, you know what, I don't care about uh, your money and your greed. You will give a certain amount back to the church. You will look after the poor. You will respect this value of look after others as you would have them look after you. That was the church. And if you don't, we will. That's right. the money you give That's us. right. And the church doesn't do that anymore. It doesn't have that power. It doesn't have that persuasion. So one has to believe that if they're not doing it, who's going to? Well, maybe the, the government should be doing that. The government should be regulating corporations, should be regulating our consumerism so that there's a balance, so that these things are balanced. Well, it's not doing that. It's, a, it's living entirely in the world of the corporation and the marketplace right now. And so, yeah, if you're frustrated as an individual, well, you can't change the system yourself. You can't enforce a government that's going to take a different role. But you can try and search for balance in your own life for a start. And when you have that awareness and when you start looking for that balance, you will start to meet other people that were also searching for that balance and so on, and, and it can only grow. So what's next? With, yeah. What's the sequel called? The Value Crisis Terminator 2? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Beneath the planet of the value crisis. That's right. I don't know that there will be a second book. There, there might be a second edition as I refine the ideas and learn more, spreading the, the ideas and the concepts out there that are... Oh, The Sill Podcast, Perspectives on Art and Technology, is a Connecting Dots Media production. Available at ConnectingDotsMedia.com.